Hey there, it's the real Jason Duncan. I've got a special announcement for you really quick. I am hosting the Exit Lifestyle Conference in Nashville, Tennessee, February 3rd, 4th, and 5th. 2022. You don't want to miss it. Go to theexitlifestyle.com to learn more. But I, I only realize in hindsight that the whole thing had been fueled on a false foundation of sacrifice. And there's no joy in that. And when there, where there's no joy, the end result has to be around uh, disappointment, you know, a sense of letdown, uh, because you expected something that you were never going to get, which is a sense of fulfillment from chasing basically a false god. And so that's what I was experiencing. But I didn't have the self-awareness to realize that at the time. Do you think that that had, because uh, you, you actually said at one point in our conversation that what you were doing was not a passion of yours, although it was providing income and it gave you, it was a creative outlet, but it wasn't passion. You weren't passionate. Do you think that that's what that really was all about is that you don't feel like you were operating in your, what I refer to as your superpower, the thing that you're uniquely qualified at, good at, gives you energy and that you just get joy from? Yeah, absolutely. Most definitely. In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. So welcome back to another edition of The Root of All Success. I'm the real Jason Duncan. As you heard in the intro, I'm interviewing super successful entrepreneurs about how they became successful. We'll talk about what they believe success is and that's what this show is all about. So to give you information so that you can use the same keys that they unlock success with, you can use them in your life as an entrepreneur. So I've got an amazing guest for you today. I'm going to introduce her in just a moment. But as you can see, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm at my home studio here at Dunhaven in Gallatin, Tennessee, just north of Nashville, uh, because my guest is in Bali, Indonesia. So she couldn't make the flight over just to do the show. So we decided to do this, uh, do this by Zoom. Zoom. So thankful to the Zoom technology. Uh, I also want to give a shout out to the C-Suite Radio Network for helping us be syndicated on all podcast players. So no matter where you're listening to this, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for subscribing. If you haven't hit the subscribe button, make sure you subscribe. And then finally, please, 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 please go leave us a review, especially if you think it's a five-star uh, worthy uh, podcast, because the more five-star reviews we get, the further up in the rankings we go, the more people get to hear the show, the more interesting guests reach out to me and say, hey, I want to be on your show, and the more value you get. So really, if you leave that five-star review, it actually makes this show better, believe it or not. So thank you for doing that. And again, if you haven't watched this on YouTube, you can go to youtube.com slash the real Jason Duncan. And there's tons of tons of content that I put out there every single week, but there's the two shows I release every single week will be right there for you to watch just like this show today. So my guest today is coming all the way from Bali, Indonesia. She's actually an Australian moved to Bali to escape a little bit of the, uh, uh, craziness that's going on in Australia, but her story is going to tell us a little bit about more why she originally um, moved to Bali for uh, for school for her kids. Um, you're going to talk today. We're going to talk today with Janet Hogan, and uh, you can find her at JanetHogan.com. That's H-O-G-A-N, JanetHogan.com. And she runs a coaching platform called The Fifth Door. And I'm not going to give away all of what it is that she does right now in the intro, but it didn't start that way. She's had a 40 plus year career being very successful in the entrepreneur space with millions and millions of dollars of earnings and millions of dollars of loss. And we're going to talk about how she started in the restaurant business and moved into going back into W2 employee land and then starting an advertising agency and then doing land development. And her she's got a case study in patience because that land development project, while it made $23 million, you're going to find out, actually 
took her 10 years to do it. And, and there's some reasons behind that. And then the 08 crisis kind of changed her life. And then she started a wedding venue. And then ultimately she's now a very, very successful and highly skilled coach, helping people figure out their identity and how to live in their best ideal life when they go through identity crises, specifically as entrepreneurs and high-performing executives. So I want to welcome Janet Hogan to the show. Janet, thanks for being here. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to be here, uh, Jason. And um, yeah, thank you for inviting me. And what about the miracle of technology? Isn't it fabulous that we can do this? I'm still pinching myself. It's, uh, maybe that's one of the gifts of COVID. Uh, well, you know, I, I had a friend, I've got a, a very good friend of mine, actually, who's been a Zoom customer for years. I, and I don't know how, how many years, I just know he's been talking about it ever since I've known him five or six years. And he's been talking about Zoom. Yeah, we need to do a Zoom meeting. And I didn't know what this guy was talking about. And now, of course, if you don't know what Zoom is, I mean, you're living under a rock. But uh, yeah, I'm thankful for the technology. I'm also thankful that um, that I got to know you. You know, you and I were introduced through an organization that we both belong to. And, um, you know, as it, as it is, we reached out to one another and got to talking. And at the time you were living in Australia. And if the listeners haven't picked up on that yet, you know, you, you have a different accent than me. <laughs> Mine's Southern, but yours is Southern hemisphere. So. <laughs> but, uh, but we got to connect and um, I thought your story was very interesting. And I thought, man, you would be a really fascinating guest. So not only do we get the pleasure of listening to a cool accent on the show, but uh, mm-hmm. you, we get to hear a really great story. So Janet, let's start with this. How did, how did you get your start in entrepreneurship? Well, when I look back on my life, I have to say I'm really a bit of a serial entrepreneur. And um, I say that I was really quite opportunistic. Um, and I'll explain why that's not a good thing in a moment. But a short summary is um, we started businesses um, because we could, not necessarily because we should. And when I say we, I'm talking about my partner of 40 years, my husband, Ralph. Um, and so together we set up a restaurant, uh, which did very, very well. And then just as that was doing well, we uh, sold that. We then started up an advertising agency, which did really, really well. But just before it really peaked, we sold that. Um, we then got into real estate development and did that really well and uh, made lots and lots of money, created a suburb. And all of that afforded us this fabulous mansion by the sea in an area in Australia called the Whit Sundays, which is a bit like the uh, Caribbean. Private beach next door, if you can picture that, aqua water, turtles bobbing up and down in the bay. And I realized that we'd spent all this time, you know, we're talking decades now, uh, working to the mantra of money first. And then uh, through hard work and making money, we'll find our peace and our happiness. And so I got to this point where I had everything I thought I wanted and looked around it and went, oh, my goodness, why do I feel so empty inside? What's that all about? So feeling empty um, after you've been so successful in a financial standpoint, what was that about? What, what, what did that mean to you? Well, I, I totally get, Jason, that some people, for some people, money is their motivation. And I absolutely understand that. And I also realise that as individuals, we have to know what our particular motivation is because it isn't necessarily money for a lot of us. And I realised that essentially what I'd done was an act of self-sacrifice that I thought, well, if I sacrifice myself on the altar of hard work, I will be rewarded as if that was a noble cause. And instead what happened, I got everything I thought I wanted, um, but it was, a, it, it was a poison chalice in a way. And I didn't know what to do with that feeling of emptiness. So I did nothing, because what do you do? And I, I think, you know, the universe or whatever the force is kicked in on my behalf as you know, the law of the wake up call has a habit of doing. If you ignore the first one, it brings you another one that's even louder. And the following year delivered the, um, you know, the great recession of 2008, the global financial crisis. So what you, so I was going to ask you about the timing of this. So you and Ralph have been married 40 years. Congratulations, by the way, that's an amazing feat. So good on you. Thank you. Um, so 40 years together in business and in life and in parenting, et cetera. And you've got, you've got children too. You, I think, or I remember you telling me you had three adult children. Yeah. Three daughters. And yeah. So we had all of that in place at the time of this, Oh my God, what's life all about moment. 
And then you and Ralph had been very successful, but in the attempt to chase the almighty dollar, it just didn't seem to fit like what you really were made for. It sounds like, is that, is that a fair explanation? Yeah, I, I think one of the big risks in running a business and being a business owner is we put so much of ourselves into it. You know what that's like because you've mm-hmm. done it. You know, you've walked this path. And so much rests on our shoulders. It's so different from being an employee. You know, we really do carry the responsibility not only of our own lives but of our employees. Uh, it's a massive uh, weight to carry when you think about it. So what tends to happen is not only are we wearing six or seven different hats, you know, because we're having to be, you know, the the bean counter and we're having to be the client liaison person and the creative person, the producer, the operations manager, all these roles, um, that along the way it's hardly surprising that we lose our idea of self. We absolutely bury this sense of um, identity. And so... Um, every time we would go to sell a business, uh, the fear was, um, okay, well, now I have to confront myself and I don't know what that is. So before we even gave ourselves a moment of breathing room, we'd be diving into the next business. It was almost like uh, staying busy was a, a way of avoiding who we really were or, uh, you know, taking a look in the mirror, so to speak, that, that busyness and productivity and keeping the cash rolling in um, uh, was a big distraction that stopped us having to identify, well, what, what are we all about? What are we here for? What am I here for? Yeah. Isn't that, it, I, I talk about this a lot and isn't that funny how so many entrepreneurs and business people in general uh, use busyness as a badge of honor or as, as, as an indicator of success and uh, how are you doing? Well, I'm busy. Oh, that's good. You busy these days. You get like busy seems to be the thing. And I remember, I guess it was, I was it 2018 or 2019. I forgot what year it was, but I, I don't, I'm not often one to make new year's resolutions, but I made one that year. And I said to myself, I will not say I am busy all year long, unless it is 100% true. Cause I just knew <laughs> that we're all, we have a propensity to say that we're busy. And, and it was so freeing to really catch myself to say, I'm not busy. So I love now when people say, Hey, you, you guys busy? Well, not really, but it's good. Like I'm good. But the other part of what you said, Janet, I think is really important. And I want to, I, I want to go more into your story before we talk about this, but I think what's interesting about this identity crisis, you didn't use that phrase, but you and I talked about this before uh, when mm-hmm. we spoke last and prep for the show is this identity crisis as, as very successful entrepreneurs. Uh, when we exit a business, we can experience that identity crisis. And, and, and for you and Ralph, you guys were going from business to business, to business, to business. And, and so your identity was changing except for the fact that you were just the owner of the business. And at some point when you finally stepped away from all of it, so to speak, you were like, well, who am I? And I know I said, I did the same thing and I really want to dive into that. But before we talk about that, what was your first business? Like, what was it that you actually did you and Ralph or you alone? What was your first business? Well, the wine back a long way back in time, Jason, <laughs> um, to the late 1970s, would you believe? And my mom had a restaurant in a street in Sydney that was in the same street as my as Ralph's uh, restaurant. And hers was empty. His was always full. So we thought, oh, we better check out the competition. And sure enough, the food was amazing. This is back in the day when uh, food was basically just meat and two veg on a plate, you know, um, even at a restaurant. And so this place, people would actually cart their video cameras, which were like mini television sets on their shoulders to film the food because it was actually the first art directed food. Um, And so needless to say, I was pretty blown away. Um, So uh, we started, you know, going out. And then as when we were together um, and it was pretty true, clear that we wanted to spend the rest of our lives with each other. We that's when we embarked on our first business, which uh, turned out to be. Um, a restaurant or a cafe, if you like, that was into punk food at the time. I know that's hard to believe. Punk uh, but food? we'd have punk. So, so that's like uh, food that uh, food that had a bad attitude about it, but it was really good food, really well made. So, um, you know, for instance, instead of saying uh, terrine de poisson, it would be like shark terrine or jaws, and it would have a little fin on it, like a shark fin, and red uh, tomato coulis as a blood trail on the on the um, on the plate. <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway, it was it was a lot of fun, and we got the the award for the 
the Bent Fork Award for the best uh, cheap restaurant in Sydney, which was actually quite a, a good award back in the day. Um, but it was absolutely a labour of love. We were open seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, dinner, and we quickly exhausted ourselves. So not surprisingly, we then leapt to the next thing that we could do. And that, as it turned out, was advertising. So did you sell the restaurant or did you just close it? We sold it, yeah, to a couple um, who we got carried away on the creative side of things. They were much more bottom line focused, and I think uh-huh. they actually did quite well out of it. <laughs> um, but we created the, I guess we did the hard lifting, and I think that happens a lot too. The first person, um, you know, breaks the ice, does the heavy lifting, creates a reputation, and then it's quite easy for someone to step into that and go, right, now let's make it, you know, a really profitable business. So you left, so you sold the restaurant and uh, mm-hmm. built and sold a restaurant and then you move into advertising. So was your advertising a general advertising agency or were you specif- uh, specifically involved in radio, TV or some other form of advertising? Yeah, it was pretty general. So um, I actually, uh, a, a group of the guys who used to come to our restaurant um, happened to run the most successful uh, ad, ad agency in Australia at the time. And um, I'd always had a passion for writing. So, um, and Ralph's background was advertising too. I thought I was actually going to go into journalism. And he said, no, 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 get a, get a job in advertising. It's way more lucrative. Because it was still all about money. It was Money was the bottom. You know, this was, we were now moving into the 80s. You know, the greed is good era. And everything was justified by money and getting to the top and beating everyone else. That was the ethos of the day. It sounds so foreign now. Um, so, Uh, So basically, um, I got a job at this fabulous agency. I was like their token Sheila. So Sheila is an Australian word for girl or woman. And they were a very male agency. And everyone said I'd last about five minutes. But I ended up working for them for years. And that gave us the foundation to set up our own agency, which we uh, ran very successfully. So you went from restaurant to W2 employee, or I don't know what you guys call it, but in the States, yeah. you're W2 employee. So W2 employee, then open an agency. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. And how long did you own the agency? Uh, so we opened that in 91. We'd had a spell as freelancers prior to that. So we were used to, you know, running down to the letterbox and seeing if there was a, a check there waiting for us. Um that was back in the analog days. Uh, and then from there, 1991 till 97, we ran that agency until we merged it with another agency. And it was really the first, um, if you like, creative cooperative. So we started off with this fabulous building, a very old building. And in every office was a different person who represented a different expertise. You know, So there was an art director, an illustrator, a TV producer. There was us, the writers and uh, producers and so on. And so eventually it was inevitable that we turn that into, you know, a fully uh, fledged agency. And that's where we started, you know, um, yeah, servicing clients all across the board, uh, doing a lot of controversial advertising that we became famous for, like the first sexist campaign created by an all women creative team (laughs) that caused a stir. Um, But uh, yeah, again, it it was very successful. Um, but it's not what I would call my true passion in hindsight. So when you left the agency, you, or you said you merged the agency with someone else, I assume that that merger ended with you not being a part of it ultimately. Is that, is that that's, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So by that point, uh, we had two young children and we wanted to give them a better life. And we thought the, the way to do that was to move out of the city environment and take them to a small community in a, in a more regional area. And that's when we moved to the Whit Sundays. And it was interesting because email had only just come out at that time. And our, ma- our big client, our main client, uh, it was the banana industry. And um, they, they actually invested quite a lot in advertising back in the day. Um, and so I said, oh, we're going to be moving to Queensland, uh, but we'll still be doing the work. And the client said to me, oh, well, we'll put the account out to tender in that case. He didn't even, you know, miss a beat. And I said, all right, no, no, actually, I rang him the next day and said, we're not going to move. We're just going to go for a holiday. And I thought, how do we, how do we make this work? And so it was really, um, the, I, I suppose, one of the very early examples of working from a re- remote lo- location. Um, and I just had to fly down to Sydney every couple of weeks. 
uh, for client meetings and things. But what was interesting was we were so determined to make it work that we were far more diligent than we'd been when we were uh, working and living in Sydney. So it was a case of, um, yeah, if you're motivated, you can absolutely work from home. And for some people that just works better. And it was, it was very good for us to be able to live in that environment. Isn't it funny? I mean, you, you, your career is long enough that you, you've spanned these decades of how things were done, you know, when the fax machines and, yes. the, and, the, and then the, you know, waiting on the checks in the mail and then the email and, and travel. And now, as we talked about the, just a few minutes ago, Zoom is now connected a global world to a global society. And so now we, we can do this and it's not even a thought of, Hey, you want to be on my podcast? Well, I live in another continent. I can't be on your show. <laughs> well, of course you can. Yeah. We've got technology to do it. So, so advertising, not your passion. So you moved on to something else after you merged and, and evidently you've done pretty well financially. I mean, it, you're all the indicators yeah. are that you're doing really well. So what did you do next? So um, again, just looking for opportunity, um, opportunity being the driver. And we came across this fabulous piece of land. It was about 120 um, acres right on the water. And we thought, let's buy it and turn it into a suburb. And so that's what we did. So none of these things we'd really had any prior experience at. Um, <laughs> um, and the secret there to, uh, you know, to do any development in an area that's regional like that, it's like catching a wave. Um, it's, it's great to buy it at the right price. So we bought it as, bought it as a mortgagee sale. And then we had to actually wait 10 years for the market to be at a level where we could uh, sell the blocks. There were 48 blocks in this subdivision. It was massive. We built six kilometres worth of road and all the services that had to be connected. Um, and then we basically sold everything in a very, very short space of time. So, uh, again, that, and that financially did, did really well. Um, so, so then we got truly bitten by the real estate bug. And aside from that, uh, we, I counted up that we bought, renovated and sold 117 properties all in all in the course of our life. And so real estate oh, really wow. became a, a major part of our what, so what did portfolio. You, but what did you do for the 10 years while you were waiting? Like how, what, what was oh, your business? So we were still, uh, we were still servicing our advertising clients oh, gotcha, from gotcha. the tropical paradise um, <laughs> uh, while maintaining the facade of working in Sydney. There was, there was an attitude then, Jason, of you don't deserve to be living in paradise uh, while the rest of us are slaving away in the city. So we had to be very sensitive to that uh, envy, if you like. So I would, uh, you know, the client would ring me up from where he was and uh, he was in another city and say, what's the weather like in Sydney? And I would have had to have rung out receptionist beforehand to check what the weather was like in Sydney because I know he'd always ask that question. And it, it worked fine. I mean, the only day it didn't work was when we were having a very heavy tropical rainstorm and it was very sunny in Sydney and he said, what's that noise in the background? And I said, oh, it must be a terrible connection. It must be the telephone connection. But um, <laughs> um, the things that today you just take for granted, of course you can work from a re remote lo location, were very unusual back in, we're talking 1997. I think that's, um, you know, it, everybody can predict anything, but you're not, you don't know if you're crazy or smart until it happens. But I think that, this whole work from home thing that we've dealt with now over the pandemic and think, you know, everybody's been, you know, essentially forced to work from home and, and there are companies are saying, Hey, we're never going back to the office. And I, I don't think that's true. And, but, and here's why I don't think it's true. The company, one of the companies that I own, we didn't have an office for the first six years, first six years of the company, everybody worked from home. Everybody did. And then when I got an office, the productivity went through the roof. I mean, everybody was feeding off the energy in the room and in the office. And we were, it was camaraderie. We were, we were, we were friends and we would go to dinners. You know, we, we would do these things. But then after a couple of years of doing that consistently where everybody was in the office, I started giving everybody the opportunity. Hey, why don't you work from home for a day or two a week? I did that. Guess what happened? Productivity goes back up again. And so I think it's the ebb and flow. I think right now we're at this place, 
in our in our society worldwide. You know, you're you're in uh, you're actually not in Australia. We'll talk about where you are in a moment. But but in, in that side of the world, you guys are working from home. We're working from home. And it's great. And we're all being productive. But I think in the next few years, there's going to be a resurgence of people wanting to get back into an office. I, I, I That's my prediction. Anyway, I wonder if you mm. agree. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking about that because I'm fascinated by that whole topic. And I think possibly the ideal and it, it's partly based on in, individual needs as well. And maybe that kind of flexibility needs to be built into the system without you know risk of envy, but just on the basis that certain people do work better independently. But it feels like there should be at least a day where everyone gets together a week and um, um, brainstorms or whatever, you know, uh, uh, reconnects. I I know that, you know, for a lot of people, just the commute is a big issue. Like, you know, in in, uh, London, I think a quarter of their salary goes into the commute or can go into the commute. So, you know, there are major cost incentives around that too. But I feel, yeah, there's uh, definitely a need for interaction with people in a physical sense. I believe but, that, you know, hmm. God's I, I, it is my belief that God created us to be um, social creatures and we want to interact, hmm. which is one of the reasons social media is such a popular thing, even though it's not social in the in, you know, in a real life social, it does keep people connected. Now, can you imagine, let's just think for a moment, if we were in a pandemic and everybody had to work from home and there was no YouTube or, or Instagram or LinkedIn, and we didn't have a way to continue to keep in touch with what's going on. And we'd all mm-hmm. go stir crazy. We, we would be insane. Well, yeah. we digress from your story. Let's get back to your story. <laughs> so that's my fault. All right. So land development and advertising simultaneously, but it was after that decade of waiting and my goodness, there's a case study in patience. So the decade of waiting to sell this suburb, this development, this land development, where you yeah. really cashed out. What happened next after that? Uh, it felt like, yeah, it just felt like manna from heaven. You know, at one point we were selling, I think in four weeks we sold nine blocks of land. You know, it was really, there was an amazing uh, shift in attitude. And I think this was all brought on by, so we're now talking about 2004. Uh, the internet was pretty well established by that point. And so people were starting to get a taste of what it was like to uh, decentralize. And with that accompanied this thing called that first it was the sea change and then the green change. And so it was wanting to find, you know, uh, your corner of paradise. That's what it represented. And that's pretty much what we were selling. And that's what we created for ourselves. So essentially at the end of this very long road, we managed to build our place that was, you know, the paradise that we imagined that we dreamt about and, you know, envisaged. Um, for all those years. And finally it materialized. There it was. And I just never forget sitting in this kayak with my little daughter, Clover, who was quite young at the time. She would have been about five and looking at everything going, wow, we made this and going, so what? And I went, oh no. I mean, then uh, what kicks in is guilt for not being grateful. You know, so then we beat ourselves up further But I I only realized in hindsight that the whole thing had been fueled on a false foundation of sacrifice. And there's no joy in that. And where there's no joy, the end result has to be around uh, disappointment, you know, a sense of letdown uh, because you expected something that you were never going to get, which is a sense of fulfillment from chasing basically a false god. And so that's what I was experiencing. But I didn't have the self-awareness to realize that at the time. Do you think that that had because uh, you, you actually said at one point in our conversation that what you were doing was not a passion of yours, although it was providing income and it gave you, it was a creative outlet, but it wasn't passion. You weren't passionate. Do you think that that's what that really was all about is that you don't feel like you were operating in your what I refer to as your superpower, the thing that you're uniquely qualified at? good at, gives you energy and that you just get joy from? Yeah, absolutely. Most definitely. And I think what can happen in a marriage or where you have, um, you know, a couple working together is that you tend to, it's like teeth on a zipper, you know, you mesh with each other, but it doesn't mean that there's an awful lot of compromise in that process. So I was very much the person that was making everything happen, but I was kind of burying myself in the process. You know, one of the things I think we can fall into the trap of, Jason, is just doing something because we can, you know, because we've got a skill at it. And I might have been a hopeless business manager. I really was. 
but I was good at other things and good enough that I would do them, but it wasn't really tapping into my creative side. So when so, you went, well, well, go ahead and finish that, but I'll ask you about what yeah. happened after that. So finish your statement. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So um, this is the thing. I think uh, when we don't really understand who we are, you know, what our gift is, uh, we always look to the external world for direction. You know, we think, oh, there's a piece of land there. Let's buy it. We'll develop it. You know, um, it's nothing is coming from an internal motivation. And so ultimately, it's going to be like eating, you know, uh, fairy floss. It's not sat- it's not satisfying. And so that's what was happening to me. There was no um, ability, say, to for, for creativity in what I was doing. Um, it was all about just going, oh, look, we're making this amount of money this year and, and this the next year and getting our sense of significance uh, from that. So you talk about the money was certainly uh, one of the benefits of what you were doing. You, you were making, you, you use the vague term, lot of money. Get, can you give us a sense of what type of money that is? Because I think a lot of people who, and the reason I'm asking is not just because I'm curious about money and I'm trying to be nosy, but I think a lot of people who listen to this show, they understand what lot of money means, but to them that's different. And they're attempting to pursue mm-hmm. entrepreneurship because of that. And so give, can you give me a sense of what you're, I mean, you don't have to be very specific, yeah. but give us a sense of what a lot of money was for you. Yeah. A lot of money for us. Uh, well, you know what the development gross was about 23 million, which uh, for us coming from very humble origins was a very good uh, result. And there were costs to come out of that, but I suppose by the end of it, we were left with about 10 million and that for us represented everything that we needed to be financially self-sufficient. You know, if we invested that, however, (laughs) what was interesting was even though we got to that point, Jason, we still wanted to make more. Isn't that weird? And I think that there's, I think that poor people, and I say poor people and not derogatory. I'm just absolutely defining a person, a, per, a poor person who doesn't have the ability or not, not ability, but doesn't have the wealth that you and I and others like us might enjoy. Look at that and say, you guys are always greedy. You're always wanting more. But the reality is everybody wants more. Once you get something, goals grow, ideas grow, attainment, you know, the attainment continues. So yeah, you, you sold your development for 23 million. You grow, you know, you netted 10 million. Okay. This was awesome. Let's go. Let's do more. Even though to anybody, they would look and say 10, 10 is enough. 10 is enough. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe, I, I don't like the word enough. I really don't like the word. And we could even get into this if you want to, <laughs> I want to talk about it a little bit, but this idea of enough you know, it's almost selfish because what does that mean? Like, I just want enough for me. I don't care about my wife and kids. I just want enough. You would call me selfish. I said, well, I just want enough for me and my wife, but not my kids. Well, that's selfish. Okay. Well, I just want enough for me and my wife and kids. Okay. Well, that makes sense. How come it just adding a couple more people now does it make me selfish? And what I mean by that is I think that as entrepreneurs, we have the unique ability to create generational wealth that impacts humanity everywhere. So enough doesn't exist. It's not greed. It's the opposite of greed. I think most people think that that's what I'm talking about, but the reality is 10 million life-changing money, but you're like, wait, we want more. Why? Because you have a good heart and you want to impact the world. Am I saying that right? What do you think about that? Yeah. If, if that were me now back then, yes. But me back then uh, was a scared person operating out of fear. So that uh, it, uh, it's not enough was actually coming from lack. And so if mm. we said, all right, what, what are we putting the money towards? It's uh, still essentially back then, it's still essentially, um, you know, selfish stuff, if you like. Oh, well, you know, we could have a part share in a jet, you know, <laughs> and we, that way we could travel anywhere fast or the holiday house. Or th- this was still very much the thinking of that of that era. Now it would be a totally different, uh, a different equation. So um, I'm talking as someone as uh, as a product, if you like, of that time. And uh, that's really what we were operating under. And that's why I had to have the crash that I had. Well, talk about that. So. So you land development was not the last thing because you, you had other you had other stores and now you're doing something completely different. So let's yeah. kind of let's let's go quickly through those last few steps. And then I've got some specific questions about how sure. that all came about. 
Yeah. What happened so, next? so the next thing was um, after that moment of I've climbed the top of the mountain and the view sucks from up here, what next? Because I didn't do anything. Um, you know, that's when uh, the higher forces took charge and d- delivered the 2008 global financial crisis. And so that was really the mo- one of the most painful years in my life, watching over the space of 12 months as just about everything that we'd you know, spent all that time working for collapsed because we took out a margin loan to accelerate our, our wealth. Um, and so uh, while everyone else was uh, slowly losing their fortunes, ours kind of just vaporized, particularly when layman's went down. And so my sense of self was pretty much tied up in our net worth, you know, self-worth equals net worth. So when the net worth disappears, you go with it. And that's what happened to me. And that's where I really crashed. And that's where I had to ask the questions. Okay, obviously uh, something is wrong in this belief that I've had. Um, I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what values I should be pursuing, but I know that something fundamentally has to change. And it was that really, or a feeling of I'd rather not be here at all. And I think when we get to that point, um, you know, the, we, we've got a choice really. We can, we, can, we can either undergo physical death and leave all that pain and suffering behind for our loved ones, or a more metaphysical death where we have to let go of a belief that simply doesn't serve us anymore. What was your next business after that? Because real estate kind of fell through, fell down, fell out in 2008, 9, 10. So what did you do next? Well, we did the only thing we could do, which was monetize our mansion. So we had a $5 million mortgage and uh, no income. Uh, So we took our mansion that we lived in, that we created it and that we created and we turned it into a wedding venue. And um, again, not because we should, but because we could. And so that's what we did. And we started holding weddings uh, from our place by the sea. Um, And Ralph and I, our lifestyle changed somewhat. We were living upstairs in the bedroom while everyone was partying down below to red hot chili peppers. Um, And uh, (laughs) give it away, give it away, give it away now. All right. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, it was. I was still in shell shock, really, from the financial crash. So I'd kind of, um, I had a bit of PTSD at that point. Um, but we were managing to scrape together money, and actually, we started doing really well at one point. And we were winning the awards for the best uh, venue, and we created systems around it. So weddings are a very classically a mum and dad show. And so because we'd um, run, you know, uh, proper businesses, we were able to apply that thinking to what is essentially a cottage industry and and for, for a period of time do very well from it. So the wedding. Now, if I remember your story correctly, at some point you moved from Australia to Bali during this time. Is that, is this, am I on the right time? Yes, you are. Yeah. You're, you're keeping up beautifully, Jason. I don't know how you're doing it, (laughs) but um, yes, we did. Um, The lure there, by this time we had a third child, uh, Clover. And uh, I, I'd heard on the same day from two different sources about this school in the jungle that sounded like a paradise for kids. And it was created by a fellow, a Canadian fellow who hated school because he had dyslexia. And so his mission was, I'm going to create a school that even I would have enjoyed going to. And so I thought uh, uh, Clover just experienced a little bit of bullying. So this was just when Facebook was coming out. Uh, So it was about 2012, 2011, when Facebook was becoming bigger. And um, I thought, you know what, let's get her out of this environment. Let's go to Bali. And uh, so enrolled her in uh, the green school. And it was a wonderful experience for her. But of course, what happens when you put that entrepreneurial spirit in a place like Bali where you can create so much for so little cost? Um, you just have to have an idea and there is, there's an abundance of very talented people here to bring it to fruition. Um, we thought, let's branch out our wedding business to Bali. And that's what we did. And you did. So you're living in Bali. The, the, the mansion is still going as a wedding venue back in Australia. Things are going well. Your children are doing well in school. Things are things are finally, at least finally, finally might not be the right word, but there's some starting to come together. Everything seems right. 
but you're not doing any of that anymore, right? You're, you're, you're coaching people and helping people through uh, clarity and vision and waking up. So is that, so when did all uh, well, that begin? I hadn't, I hadn't actually started that work at that point, but we, what happened, uh, we had this golden moment where we brought in a manager and we created the systems and processes, which of course are essential, uh, that we could actually move away from the business. So we could, to, to use your expression, exit without exiting. And that was a moment of bliss um, where we would get up in the morning and go, oh my goodness, we're still making a great income from this business and we're not having to show up anymore. In fact, they really didn't want us to show up. It was like almost like we were a liability. They were happy to just run the business without us. And that was a wonderful, um, yeah, example of being, you know, unnecessary. Um, uh, and that lasted for about a year or 18 months. So you were able to pull off the old exit without exiting. <laughs> That's great. So your business continued to give you the, the tax benefits and the financial benefits, but without the burden of having to run daily operations. Yeah. And as you pointed out, and this is what a lot of my clients find out too, is that when you do this, your employees actually prefer you not to be around because they're like, Hey, we got this. We got yeah. this. It's almost like a, it's almost like teaching you. You had three daughters. I've got a son and a daughter. And I remember teaching them both how to ride a bike. And I remember riding, I remember when, I learned how to ride a bike as a child too. You know, the dad, or usually it's the dad, but it could be you, the mom, but is pushing the, and holding the back of the seat and hold, holding the kid up. But once the kid learns how to do it on his own, he doesn't want dad fooling with him. Like, leave me alone. I can ride the bike by myself. And I think our employees are the same way. We train them up. We give them systems and processes. They run the business. They're doing it successfully. They don't want you showing up and holding the back of the seat. They want you to go away. Exactly. So that's awesome. And and I think the other danger of being an owner, because you are invested and, and, and owners tend to be fairly creative by nature, um, is the, the big idea. You know, so we would come in and say, we've got this great idea and everyone would go turn pale and go, no, 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 no. We don't want any big ideas because these projects really disrupt the flow of the business. So the business was absolutely uh, better off without us. And when did you start the coaching business, which is what you're doing now? Well, the, the underlying fear that I had was, and I really experienced this in, at that crash point, was I don't have any idea who I am. And I didn't even understand that we needed to figure that out. And so Bali um, is an amazing place in that this is where people come to discover themselves. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a renowned healing place, but also in terms of doing deep inner work, um, you know, there are many retreats here and it's, it's a beautiful country and they say it's got a special energy about it. Um, it's, you know, one of the countries that was featured in the film Eat, Pray, Love. It was the love component. Um, and it is like that. It's got, a, it's got this um, beautiful um, energy that could, you could say was quite transformative. Equally, it heightens everything. So if you're in a bad place, it will amplify it as much as if you're in a good place, it'll amplify it. So I essentially just became a very um, a greedy little retreat attendee and went to every seminar and workshop that I could to figure out who I was and in the process created the program that I wished someone had given me when I was at the bottom of my dark pit, um, you know, a lifeline essentially. And uh, it, it was called The Fifth Door and it was really all about um, helping uh, people achieve a certain level of self-awareness that, that they could make these important life decisions like, should I be opening up this business? Does this make sense? Not coming from opportunity, but coming from a place of because I have this vision and um, I, I want to see this vision fulfilled and this vision comes from within me. So it's nothing to do with, you know, external circumstance. And um, I thought, how awesome would it be to teach this program to kids while they're still at school, you know, at age, say, 16, 17, when these ideas about, you know, should I go to college? What should I do? Um, they can get some clarity before they leave school. So the Green School was gracious enough to allow me to teach this program, the fifth door, which I did. And, um, and it went really well. And I loved writing the reports for the kids and just to help them with heightened self-awareness, go down, you know, a better path so they didn't have to make so many mistakes from the get-go. But what was interesting was it was the parents who picked up on it because they were reading the reports and going, oh, I wouldn't mind knowing this stuff about me. So that's when I started branching out and teaching uh, the parents. 
So was the fifth door a retreat that some other person kind of started and you took over? Tell me about how that works. Uh, No, it was really, I, I, I suppose what frustrated me, Jason, was that I was trying to figure myself out and, uh, Back then, uh, it seemed like a lot of these seminars and personal development programs were almost like Ponzi schemes, you know, so you go in at the bottom level enticed by a very, you know, impossibly cheap deal, $99, you know, to revolutionize your wealth management skills. And then you'd be upsold and upsold and upsold. But it didn't seem like anyone was taking responsibility for the client journey, for getting getting you specifically from a point of, you know, uh, non-awareness, if you like, to awareness. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I mean, apart from it's uh, it's kind of criminal taking money from people without really taking responsibility for the outcome. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just, I'm just going to create this program out of basically things that I picked up along the way or I figured out intuitively for myself. So, yeah, so that, that five-door model, the fifth door basically repre- represented crossing the threshold into the ideal life. And I felt it was helpful to give people a bit of a model so that they could work out which door they were currently behind and that there might be a better life for them. So you just kind of took the best of the concepts that you were learning by attending retreats and these things. And you were thinking, I want to get rid of the nasty stuff that you don't, you feel icky about and what they're attempting to do, pull in the good stuff, create your own system called the fifth door and started teaching it to school children. And then eventually their parents. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and uh, so I was teaching it from um, here, from where I'm speaking to you from right now, a venue uh, called Saratoga in Bali. And what was interesting, uh, the, 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 the parental mix was very interesting. A lot of Americans, you know, very wealthy people, billionaires, you know, were, were sending their kids to this school uh, because they wanted them to have this exceptional experience. And um, so I could bring them to a place of intellectual realizing what their ideal path was. But then I hit the biggest obstacle of all. And uh, the biggest obstacle I realized was that you can intellectually know something, but doing it is a whole new thing. And uh, so I went, okay, we've got this problem. It's called inaction. What do we do with it? And you help them figure out the action. (laughs) Well, this is where we get into the psychology and this is the work that really fascinates me. Um, Okay, so we can have an idea and we can go, I'm going to set this goal and I'm going to use my willpower to achieve it. But then for some reason, we self-sabotage. And so the question is, what is that all about? And I thought, what if we could reverse engineer uh, in action? Where would that lead us? That's really Really interesting. So what is it that you specialize in working with people today? Is it around that inaction to action? Is that what you're yeah, doing? Clarity that, on that? That's, that's really the prime piece because I realized um, all the uh, coaching and learning in the world is not going to do us any good if the foundation is false, if the foundation is rotten, if we're working from what I call a core destructive belief that is telling us why we can't have something. And so this is essentially at its essence, it's shadow integration work. It's finding out, okay, what is it that's stopping us from achieving? And the good news is it's nothing external. it's, 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 you know, as much as we can think the world might be working against us, particularly now with all the pressures that are on, the good news is that all of this is is within us. And because it's within us, we can actually control the outcome. We just have to be prepared uh, to do the work to find out what it is that's stopping us um, from really achieving our potential. And when we can do that, the wonderful thing is by confronting that, the pain of that, that pain really transmutes into passion. So I, you've used that word passion again. So I want to talk about that here in a minute, but I've got a question about, uh, about something. So you've, you know, I'm, I'm looking at my notes. I wrote down while we're, while you were talking, you know, you've go from restaurant to employee to advertising agency, mogul, uh, land development, and then the crisis in 08 just vaporizes your wealth, try to figure out what to do. The wedding venue seemed like the thing to do. And then that led you to uh, eventually when you exit without exiting to figure out what you really wanted to do in life, which was mm-hmm. do the fifth door, which is tra- training, coaching, as you just described. Here's my question for you. You've been successful, at least from my seat, looking at your looking at you. You've been very successful. But how would Janet Hogan, how would you define that word success? 
so success for me is uh, doing something that fulfills you that also solves a problem for others. And it's bringing together the three essential factors, which is something that you feel passionate about, something that you're wired to do, you know, that you're truly excellent at, and then applying that to add value to the lives of others. And it's very easy to get just two of those things and not, not all three. But if you can get the trifecta, that's when uh, you're really uh, moving from wealth accumulation to prosperity. So the difference is we were in the wealth accumulation space and it was all about us and the wealth stopped there. What I love about prosperity is that this is where you transition to living in exchange. So you're in a constant state of giving and receiving and the receiving isn't just about financial receiving, although that's an essential component, but it's also receiving the fulfillment that you get from uh, uh, adding genuine value to the lives of others. As they say, you know, when you heal someone else, you're healing yourself at the same time. So it's the gift that keeps giving. That to me is true success. Well, with that as a backdrop for the definition, do you consider yourself to be a successful person? Uh, yes, I oh, absolutely. In that I wake up every morning uh, wanting to get out of bed, not because I'm being pushed, but because I'm being pulled. And the more I do this work, the more I find myself zeroing in on really that sweet spot. And so it's a process of uh, eternal discovery too. It's, it's uh, yeah, I, I can't compare my life now with how it was. We're not, I'm not making the, the tens of millions of dollars that I was, but I also realized I never really needed that, that share in the jet or the, the holiday <laughs> house. <laughs> so my life is, is much, much simpler on a material basis. Um, yet I could live anywhere and, and I, I love the gardens here and it's absolutely beautiful, but my focus really is on showing up. That's what it's all about now. Well, I, I really, really like your perspective, Janet. It makes me like you even more now that I hear all of the story. So the listeners to my show know in the root of all success, I talk about and I always ask the guests their definition of success. And I don't think I've had the same definition ever in all the shows I've ever recorded. And all of them are good. They're all really good definitions, just like what you gave. And I always talk about these five keys that I believe are that lead to success. And I and I think I I've heard in your story where these five keys are showing up and I'm going to spend the last few minutes we have together kind of diving into those things. So listeners to the show know that I talk about these five keys to success and I'm going to list them very quickly. The first is passion, which we're going to talk about because you've used that word three times in our show, right? So far. So passion, uh, being at the right place at the right time, knowing the right people, preparation, and then plan. And, and, and they're, those are the five they're talking. They're all start with P because it helps me to remember them as a former school teacher. I know. And as a former pastor, I know alliteration helps. So, yeah. um, so you use the word passion more than anything else. So I want to talk really fast and I'm going to spend the most time on passion. You, you be in the right place at the right time. If I could look at your story, you talked about that street where your mom and dad had that restaurant and Ralph's family had the restaurant. So that seems to me like right place, right time. Also the fact that you owned that $5 million mansion in the middle of an, uh, of a crisis where you needed cash flow, it provided you the opportunity to get cash flow, even though it was accidental, it wasn't intended. So again, those indicate to me, right place, right time, the, uh, the right person, you know, Ralph seems to be kind of an interesting guy and the right person. There are probably other people in your life you could point to like that. Had that person not been here, I wouldn't have been successful. You've mentioned several times about how you did it because not maybe because you should, but because you could. And I think that that indicates a level of preparation, because had you not been prepared for that moment, you wouldn't have been able to could do it like forget should you wouldn't have you couldn't have done it. Uh, so I think that indicates preparation. And the final is a plan. I think you parlayed your financial success in every area, which is what plan really means is how do you financially deploy your ideas? You've been able to plan that. So all of that I see and you can certainly agree, disagree, add color commentary. But I really want to talk about passion. But before I ask the passion question, what do you think about the way I analyze those four other keys? Do you agree the way I'm seeing it? 
Yeah, I totally. And um, and I see that different behavior profiles, you know, if you look at Myers-Briggs, for instance, you know, some people are planners and others aren't. And when you said the word planning, that was the one piece where I went, ah, you know, I'm not a planner. <laughs> I tend to, um, no, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't uh, basically agree with just flying by the seat of your pants. It's not that. But there's something, uh, Ralph's a planner, so I think sometimes that can come down to behaviour styles. Um, Whereas um, I seem to just, honestly, I live by faith um, that things do turn out for the better. And I feel that that faith replaces fear. And fear is a pretty, uh, you know, you can pretty much assume if you're running on fear, it's not going to end well. Um, so that's my planning comes from that faith that I have that uh, things will ultimately work out. Uh, you and I are more alike than I knew because you and I, the way you just described that is how I live my life. I am such a, I am very good at flying by the seat of my pants, although I don't recommend it for most people because most people can't act. They don't execute at a high level when they're acting like that. But I think that you, the way you described it, you and I are very, very similar. I too have faith that things are going to work out. Like when I exited my big company to go do other things and start other companies, uh, like how many times have I checked in on them? Very few, because not because I shouldn't, but because I really have faith that they're going to do the right thing. But let's talk about passion. So you mm-hmm. use the, the word passion two, three times. And here's my yeah. sense. I, I have a sense that the way you're describing passion, you're describing the emotional side of passion, the the sheer joy and attraction and connection that you have with the thing that you're doing. You mentioned that when you were doing advertising, it wasn't your passion. It wasn't your passion in real estate, land development, development. But it, but I think you you your eyes changed and your voice changed and everything changed. Your physiology changed when you started talking about the fifth door. So passion is actually a word that used to annoy the hell out of me um, because I didn't understand it. Uh, what I have come to realize about passion and why I feel it's so uh, precious is that it actually comes from our pain. So we have to have experienced some form of pain and we want to heal that pain. And in the healing of the pain, we find what we're truly passionate about. So it's coming from a heart-based place. And when I look back on my life and the pain that I was undergoing, which is kind of a pain of burying the self alive, that's how I would liken it to, but it's really the pain of self-betrayal. When uh, we choose to put something ahead of the self, you know, and what we've been put on this planet to do, And so when that's finally released and we can heal that pain by actually putting ourselves out into the world, that's when we tap into the energy of passion. And passion in and of itself, though, is unformed energy. So we have to, uh, we we can't just spray it around like a fire hose. We then have to channel it into our particular power, whatever that is. And then, of course, that power, we're we're getting into P words here, Jason, that power is then (laughs) directed to purpose which is working for a higher cause, but the passion is the thing that gets it all, all started. It's, it's the, uh, it's, it's the fuel. It's a rocket fuel. So I think that uh, when I talk about passion, I think what most people misunderstand <clears throat> is that passion is only the emotional side of passion. There's, there's only this emotional, you know, I'm not passionate about so-and-so, so I can never be successful. Well, that's not true. Like I, I was never passionate about LED lighting or electrical contracting, but I developed and built a multi-million dollar company in that area because I had the other side of passion, which is where the actual word comes from. And you were alluding to this a little bit, but the word passion the etymology teaches us that it comes from the root word, meaning willing to endure. You could even say willing to suffer. So willing to endure. So if you're willing to endure for something, if you have this pain, as you were talking about, and you push and you're willing to endure through the pain, that's passion. That's what really what it means. That's the mental side of passion versus the emotional enjoyment side of passion. And I, I liken it to, you know, the passion of the Christ. Um, it wasn't that Jesus was excited or, or had joy to go to the cross. It was that he was willing to endure the pain for a greater cause, which you talked about. Mm. So in your life, how does that side of passion show up in your entrepreneurial story? Uh, passion in that sense is what gets me through everything. So it's not an act of willpower. It's uh, very much, it's, it's an act of heart, I would say, um, that is informed by spending many years not in that space. So I think um, 
the uh, the ability to persevere. This is me talking personally. Uh, comes from having, uh, if you like, suffered in the space of not being really invested in what I was doing, just go, going through the motions um, almost robotically um, because I, I could. But now I am actively invested in seeing what I do land at the other side, in, in other words, have an effect. And that creates this... Um, Passion leads to so many things. It leads to perseverance. It leads to creating something that uh, is to have an outcome. It leads to productivity, effectiveness, all those things. It's almost like if you took it away, uh, you'd have a lifeless body. <laughs> you know, It's like the lifeblood of a business um, that ignites the vision. It does everything. And it's a, it's a hard thing, though, I think, to really communicate because if you're talking to someone who hasn't experienced that, they can get quite repelled by that idea, Jason, as, as I remember I did. It's a, it's a hard one. It's almost like you've got to talk about it in theory and hope that people get it. And when they finally get it, then, you know, uh, their business life um, really takes off from that point. Well, I, I, uh, I appreciate so much getting to spend the time talking to you, Janet, because I, I look at this, you know, restaurant to advertising, to land development, to wedding venue, to coaching, helping people through these identity crises of, of not knowing who they are and what they're supposed to do and live that ideal life. And so I am really intrigued by your story. How would listeners get in touch with you so if they say, hey, I like this lady, I want to talk to her. So what, how would they get in touch with you? So the, the easiest way is via my website, uh, which is janethogan.com. And um, I love LinkedIn as a platform as well. So you'll find me on LinkedIn. Um, and, uh, and if you want to email me direct, uh, we can do it that way too. So there's just Janet at janethogan.com. So, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, anyone who might be feeling a little bit uh, lost in the entrepreneurial space or maybe they're running a business and like I was, terrified of selling it because I didn't know what I would do, understand that that's absolutely normal to feel that way, but it's probably a symptom of a loss of identity. And that's all that's required at that point is to do a deep dive into the self, which doesn't have to be painful or protracted, uh, but to shed light on what it is that you really are supposed to be doing with your life. And that's really when the joy begins. Yeah, I know that you and I spoke uh, a long time ago, well, maybe not a long time ago, but months ago about um, the identity crisis I went through when I exited my business. And I think that so many entrepreneurs who are listening to this show right now know that, you know, as, as a coach, I help people exit their businesses without selling them. And what, what I try to help also prepare them for is that identity crisis that they're going to experience. Because if you've been introducing yourself as the president, CEO, the owner, the chief bottle washer and the order taker at the company that you built, and now you've exited that, you still own it, but you've exited it. They're, you're going to have a hard time. That identity crisis is going to last a while because you've been so tied up in that. And I will admit to my listeners, that is, I can help prepare you for that. And I can tell you what I did to work through it, but that isn't my niche. That's not what I do, but that's what Janet does. So if you want to talk to Janet, go to janethogan.com. That's H-O-G-A-N. So janethogan.com. And she said you could email her Janet at janethogan.com. You can find her on LinkedIn. Um, Janet, I'm going to give you the last word. Is there any final bits of information, advice, et cetera, you'd like to give to the audience? Yeah, I, I just say to anyone who might be feeling a little bit antsy or feeling self-doubt or imposter syndrome uh, or, uh, you know, just that they're not up to the task, just understand there is nothing inherently wrong with you. This is just fear showing its face. And if you can uh, get to the bottom of that fear, understand that core destructive belief that's driving you from, you know, from the bottom up, bring that to the light. Uh, you won't, you probably can't imagine how your life can change at that point. You're really uh, enjoying a whole new sense of freedom and anyone who really wants to achieve at their peak potential uh, can now do that journey relatively easily and quickly. It doesn't have to take a long time, but that's when you can really enter into the slipstream of your life and things happen effortlessly. So I heartily endorse that as someone who's spent so many decades not in that space. 
Yeah. Well, Janet, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for dialing late on your time zone in Bali, Indonesia, uh, where you are. And here we are in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, in the United States. So thank you for being here. I appreciate it very, very much. And I look forward to continuing our relationship now that I know you a lot better. <laughs> so I look forward to talking to you later. Thank you so much, Janet. Thank you, Jason. Well, there you have it, listeners, another successful entrepreneur talking about her journey to success. And while we didn't spend as much time on this show as we do in some others where we dive into all of the five keys, it is inevitable that they show up in every story and they showed up in hers. Specifically, we talked about that word of passion and how that emotional side of passion versus the uh, the, the mental side of passion and how she was able to tap into both of those to lead her to success. But I think the thing that I want to clue in on before we f- sign off for today's show is that with Janet, her real life and calling and true passion didn't happen until she exited her business. And specifically, she did the exit without exiting thing, which I talk about a lot. Hashtag exit without exiting. She got that wedding venue business running without her so that she could move to another country, help her kids get the services that they needed in the school. And then through that discovered her true passion as a coach and a coach to high success, high, uh, high achieving successful entrepreneurs. So what are you waiting for? When are you going to exit without exiting? Because your true passion and true life and your true identity could be on the other side of that exit. If you want to know more about how to do that, I run an exit accelerator. It's a group coaching cohort that meets for 12 weeks with 12 entrepreneurs. We do eight sessions by Zoom, and I show you exactly the four steps that I took to exit a multi-million dollar business that had been recognized in Inc. Magazine and Entrepreneur Magazine and many other places. I exited that business without selling it to a third party so that I could go find my true passion, part of which is running this show, The Root of All Success. So if you want to do that, go to exitwithoutexiting.com. Sign up to join my next cohort, exitwithoutexiting.com. I would be honored to have you be a part. I'm The Real Jason Duncan. And until next time, remember, Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.